Criminal Magic. Chapter 28, Part 2. Thursday, 2046, GMT-8. Those friends thou hast, and their adoption tried. Grapple them unto thy soul with hoops of steel. Coordinator can practically feel them losing traction. The query is slipping away. The Doppler-shifted sound of an engine rises up toward them from the still invisible lake. Pop! Tom, she barks in her throat mic. If you're in range, converge on the point. You get there first, just open up on those fuckers. No talk, just blow and go. She dials in the house sat cell coordinates and opens a channel. Listen up, Ovi, she shouts. She's out of breath. There's no real need for silence now anyway. Might as well scream for all the good it would do. Hey, here we are, she thinks, armed to the teeth, running around like a bunch of school kids playing capture the flag. Ovi crackles back in her ear. Yes, how can I? She cuts him off. Get me a flyer out of the backup, she rasps. I don't give a shit how you do it. Just get it here. The guy's off on the lake and we're in a shitload of mess if we don't catch him before he hits the other side. Kieran comes on. It figures he's been listening. We are booked into our Indu contact points as we speak, but there are some complications. The watershed is a particularly sensitive area. Fuck you and your complications, she screams her impatience. Get me a goddamn screamer and get it now. Perhaps Ovi wasn't clear on this point, Kieran says. Perhaps I'm not making myself clear, the coordinator breaks in. If we don't get some overflight on this lake in under 10 minutes, Kohler's gone. You hear that loud and clear? Understood, Kieran says. But it is unsafe. May compromise other coordinators having none of it. I'll tell you what's unsafe, Kieran, she screams. Unsafe is having this freak Kohler out of control and in the world. We are pushing as we speak, Kieran says calmly, suggesting nothing more than a desire to finish the conversation. Just... Get it here, coordinator says. She rattles off a string of coordinates, switches off and begins running again, closer to the lakeside. As she clears the tree line, goosebumps rise on her forearms. Out on the flat bench of the lake, the figure of a single man stands at the focal point of a dozen converging headlamp spots. Answer. She is simultaneously amazed and alarmed at the thoughts of anger, frustration, and morbid satisfaction that flow through her mind as she crosses the last few meters, separating them. Thursday, 2047, GMT-8. Answer watches from the shore as the ancient enemy skips like a flat stone out onto the lake. It doesn't matter that the others are coming. He is alone, and the other is gone. His body quivers with readiness still, plain physical denial of the possibility of failure. For the briefest instant, he considers whether it might be possible to throw himself out over the water, running just fast enough, just far enough to catch up to the disappearing lump of fleeing boat. But the great cat's sigh sounds like velvet in his head. Little brother, it seems to say. Sometimes bravery shows no wisdom. Stone may not convinced it is light by pushing it. The fat blood of Answer's frustration rings out into the night as he raises his clenched hands. Motherfucker! He screams, voice rattling in his throat, catching on the hooks of disappointment and dissipating into thin air where it mixes with the rest of timeless history filled with epithets, mournful regrets, and the agonies of righteous vengeance denied. 
Thursday, 2048, GMT minus 8. Aramichi Mikio lays the black handset in its cradle. He admires the old phone's clumsiness. Sitting there alongside a suite of highly stylized miniature office tools, it seems a genuine antique. He uses it because he feels like the mass of the receiver is in his hand, and it feels good. Something vaguely reassuring about a device you could injure someone with. The conversation plays through his head. Walker's voice reminds him of stale cigarettes. Got a bird out of the nest, boss, he says. And how is it? Harry asks. Unclear about that, sir. Eastbound. Could be the lake. Anyone else on this? Harry asks with a casual effect. Just you and me and the Jojo and the bird, sir. And Harry idly picked up and trolled the black bureau on his desk. I assume he's someone you keep close. How's my dick, sir? Mikio is tempted to smile at the slight break in formality, but he lets it slide by instead. Very well, he says. Let me know. Yes, sir, Walter said. One more thing, Walter, Harry says before hanging up. No more, sir. I don't like it. Ari rolls the chair back, strips off his woolen slippers, and wedges his feet into a pair of boots. He steps away from the desk, snags the worn-out copy of Tignat Han's long out-of-print paper book, Anger, from his podium, and moves toward the door. It's late enough to justify getting to bed, but his body has to be told to lay down. As he turns the knob to let himself out, he reaches into his pants pocket and switches off his scrubber. He used to feel pangs of annoyance at the need to anonymize, to constantly obscure every intention, but that time is long past. The absurd behavioral dualities required by a secret life have long since taken on autonomic status. These functions are a self-preservation mechanism as simple as breathing. He moves through the empty office corridor, wondering if his efforts will prove useful. Not crucial, actually, he thinks to himself. Either way, I'm well on board. With the assistance of the Indu Group's Biosoft engineers, Ari has made a practice of memorizing precisely any online conversations. He's found it inordinately helpful throughout the years, especially without the benefits of physical clues and body language. It's something difficult to glean real meaning from the disembodied voices. He remembers the call that started this particular little chain of events. The caller's voice had been lithium flat. Say, a voice murmured, there's been a spill. Very toxic. Could use a hand cleaning it up. Where? Ari asked. Ross Lake, the voice said. A series of coordinates followed, squeezed through the anonymizer. They sounded like some absurd mnemonic device. Right, Ari said. When exactly? Two minutes ago. And how clean? There was the briefest of pauses. Scrubbed would be the best, the voice said. I'll see what's possible. Thanks. Anything you can do. His mind toys momentarily with the possible consequences of his actions. Certainly, if someone found out what he'd done, there would be question. He pushes aside the steel-framed glass door and steps into the welcome chill of night. His shoulders roll inside the heavy coat, feeling relaxed, powerful. A sudden, childlike smile breaks out on his face, hidden from his minders by the dark, near-moonless night. Let them find out setting the bird loose was my call, he thinks. Let them ask what in the world I was thinking. I would just tell them the truth. I'm not sure myself. Motives are just motives, after all. In the end, they usually explain relatively little. And, after all, it's my job to act beyond my understanding. 
Thursday, 2048, GMT minus 8. Kali is 200 meters out when he hears answers scream. Hairs on his forearms stand up at the sound as he, Pillhead, and Luz grind across the sloping gravel lakeshore leading to the small beach. Rays of headlamp jerk and slash through the darkness as the assault team converges on Still's launch point. The convergence of lights and people on this anonymous spot remind Kali of something. Holy shit, it's like a fucking grand opening. His mouth opens, but before the words can form, the air is split by an incredibly shrill hum. It's a sound Kali has heard only once at a distance. Up close, it has an entirely different, coldly sinister quality. The Doppler shifts up. It's a screamer, now almost directly overhead. Luz, Kali, and Pillhead John throw themselves flat at the pebbled beach as the heavily armed aircraft drops to an elevation only a few meters off the water and streaks out over the lake heading east. Now we on some shit, Pillhead shouts, pushing himself to his feet and bolting for the tree line. Whoa, Kali yells after him. John, it's not for us. Not us. Phil stops, looks back, still quite uncertain. You sure? He prods. Luz remains on her belly, hugging the beach. Yeah, Kali nods. It's a striker. I overheard coordinator talking to somebody about getting a bird out here. Looks like she got it. Guess she was hoping maybe if we missed Cole or a screamer could take him out. Less than 30 seconds later, the relative tranquility of the screamer's passing is ripped apart by the report of its 60-millimeter cannons working somewhere across the lake. Hope it shreds that dirty prick, Pillhead mutters. That boy is some murderous businessman. Total salve. Luz regains her feet, raking gravel from her sweater. She feels nothing but sympathy for Pill's thirst for vengeance. Yes, she thinks. It would be good for the world if the Kaiman's legs were severed forever. Good for the rest of the human tribe, never again to see the long bones. She exhales, stretching her arms wide and back until her hold on anger is released. The night ripples at the edges of her vision, and despite Pill's wishes that the screamer find his target, she is not reassured. Cully moves, heading toward the waterline where aiders and newtowners are milling around, digesting their frustrations, waiting for orders. Having a bunch of new towners and collective special op folks stumbling around on Indu property was never a brilliant idea, and now the screamer's been through, it's a dead cert that an Indu team will be out here in force trying to determine why somebody's been unloading high-caliber shredders in the middle of nowhere. He keeps walking, keys his headset, setting in motion a prearranged set of calm bounces back through routers as far away as Malaysia. Clean, clean, super clean, just the way he likes it. No one can burn you if they can't flat the source. A rasp of scarred vocal cords claws at his ears. Yeah, it says. Got the drop, Kali snaps. And? Unclear, but thanks anyway. Kali snuffs the calm. The time being, they're at a dead end, scrubbed. He closes in on the fringe of the attack squad. Headlamps glint, fracturing off the lake. The random regularity of it, much like that odd set of ad hoc alliances that have brought them all together. He thinks of the Julia set, plans within plans, feints within feints, randomness as reliability. Tom waves an arm at him. Yo, call. What you got? Kali says he pulls up next to the new town security chief. Point where Eric recommends we beat our way out of here right now. Trucks will retrieve us at the bend back in Ross. Takeout's only four clicks, so we could be there in 20 minutes tops. You on that page, Kali queries, surprised at Tom's readiness to let coordinator lead. 
Tom gives Kali a sideways grin. I'm not exactly a fan, he says, but she does know her shit. Then do it, Kali says, turning and elbowing his way back to the outskirts of the small wad of people. Coordinator stands ten meters away at the water's edge, staring into the blackness. Hey, Kali shouts, you seen answer? Coordinator snorts. Shit, she smirks. Get serious. You know, if he was ever here. Can't see the point in telling Kali the truth. But less than three minutes earlier, she'd run up on the elusive Mr. Lo-Fi, standing on this exact spot. She was hot when she got to the lake, looking for an excuse to fight, elevated by Answer's failure, shamed by her own, envious, angry, ready, stuck. Now what, she mutters. She strained to recover her breath. Answer looks at her noncommittally, shrugged. Path gets longer from here, was all he could muster. It was a bitter reporting of the facts. Apparently, he did not feel obliged to elaborate on his anger at the as-is. Maybe it was the overall lack of light, but she felt alone. Even though he was standing right there, somehow he gave the impression more of an apparition than a man. The path gets longer? Coordinated snapped and criticism. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Answer's shadow seemed to sigh exasperation. That's a real knack, you know, he said. Somehow or other you managed to combine being pissed off, demanding and insulting into the smallest possible space. It's a real talent. You get bonus pay for that. The entire horrendous night's adrenaline and frustration all came to a head just at that moment. Coordinator screamed a non-word, stepping up to take a swing at the shadow's head, and then her arm simply stopped mid-arc. Throat muscles refused to produce outraged complaints. None of her body would move. Answer placed a palm softly against her shoulders. Her muscles felt like they ought to tighten in preparation for a strike, but they could not react. Sorry to interrupt, he said simply, but we don't have time. What I meant is that this fuck-up makes the game bigger, longer, more dangerous. I have to back up now, reorganize, memorize new lines in the play. As for you, you better get serious, sister. You better quit fucking around. He dropped his hand and coordinator knew she could move again, but felt immensely sapped, barely able to stand. Her animal desire to damage him was still there in spades, but her body felt simply unable. Answer shouldered his bag and moved off toward the tree line. Don't fret, hard ass, he said over his shoulder. You'll get a chance to get even. Better jump in here with all four feet. Big games call for big players. Answer began fading as he moved across the casual reach of her headlamp. Oh, yeah, I shouted as he disappeared into the night, throwing words over his shoulder. Tell Kali I'm picking up the invite. Kali is still surveying the emptiness, the loss that is the lake. Ephemeral wisps of condensation drifts across vagrant streams of starlight. He told me to say he's taking you up on your invite, the coordinator says. Lou steps up. Who? Kali asks. Answer? The coordinator nods. I know I said I hadn't seen the prick, but I did. And that's what he left. He's taking you up on the invite, whatever that means. Kali turns toward the dark mass of mountainous forest, half expecting answer to appear. Lose is mute. After a moment's consideration, she too turns to face the deep black of trees. She raises the palm of her hand and strikes it sharply with two forefingers of her right. A sharp crack sound flares from her palm, sweeping across the indifferent glare of flat water. Her cupped hand rises to her lips, and she blows sharply across it. 
A sound, a soft, trumpeting cone of music sails into the night. What was that? Coordinator says to Kali. Naming God. His words are nearly reverent whispered, summoning the protection of Pachamama. Coordinator drops her head and shakes it from side to side. <laughs> you goddamn people, she grins into the dark, are so fucked up. Friday, 6.17, GMT minus 8. A celestial poultice of sunlight falls on Answer's crouched body, and the spreading warmth draws the night chill from his bones. An interior cold remains. The strange miasma of emotions that have been eating at him for days starts to rise toward the surface again. Below his feet, to the west, the sunrise draws its unique revelations across the land. He sits on a granite ledge beneath an arcing roof of stone as the amber light climbs up the granite precipice, etching sharp, edgy details into the fading night. Down there, confined by the walls of rock, Answer can see spring grass painting the floor of the narrow-waisted valley and shimmering under the touch of first light. Answer gnaws on a stick of beef jerky. It tastes bitter. He isn't entirely sure the flavor is the product of the food. A swig of water drawn from a random stream during the night has the same vile flavor. The source of the bitterness seems to be internal. It's not just a failure to eliminate the Cayman's sycophant. He had a long night to examine that. The problem is this knowable unroutine, the comfortable, certain chain of events that leads him from one action to the next, using his skills but undermining something at his center. There is a tattooed permanence of right being somewhere there, but it is buried deep, a disturbing presence ghosting along in Answer's soul. And now he feels something he has not known for a very long time, the faint glimmer of longing for truth. The comforts of routine offered by his usual workable chaos simply dropped away as he stood there on the shore of Ross Lake. Part of him reaches toward the promise of wonder, but that part is strongly combated by habits, patterns, ancient, ingrained behavioral algorithms. Answer stands, his hands hang at his sides, quivering ever so slightly. The sky, increasingly alight to the horizon, strikes him with blueness, his eyes sting turns and notices he is not exactly alone on the ledge. There is a vine extending itself toward the light from a fissure in the rock. Stretching toward the morning rays, a single bud gives proof of the plant's heliotropic exertions, striving. Reaching into his pockets, Answer withdraws the leather packet loose pressed on him in Newtown. A return to faith in the promise of magical transports asserts itself in curiosity, reaching. Answer retreats from the direct sun, moving to the rear limit of the slab where he sinks into a cross-legged pose that leaves his head nearly touching the stone roof of the grotto cave. He pulls the knot from the leather cord, binding the wad of doeskin. A random gust of wind sweeps across the shelf, ruffling his hair. Three objects, a thumb-sized nub of pale, mustardy root, an obsidian blade struck razor-sharp on both edges, and a small, piece of blackstone polished to a sheen. He picks up the blackstone and scores it with his fingernail. Soft, like coal. He places the shiny disc in his lap and lifts the blade. It is exceedingly fine work, napped so carefully on the edges, so thin they glow translucent when held to the light. He rubs the dimpled, 
flint struck the surface from behind, caressing the supple flow of concavity and rising line, following the sinuous stream of the ancient craftsman's hand. Something about the level of artistry fascinates him beyond reason, and his fingers crest the rise of the amazingly delicate point. He slices his fingertip. He watches blood well up in mute surprise, floods the worlds of his fingerprint, and resolves into a droplet falling and splattering onto the polished stone lying in his lap. Answer raises his finger to his lips and sucks the salty gathering of serum into his mouth. The walls of the Galleria de Ofrendas shudder into view, pulsing in time to the fluttering quiver of light thrown off by oil dish lamps lining the room's walls. Answer sits, legs crossed, unmoving fingers nearly touching his lips, the blade in his left hand, the blood-spattered shard of coal and small root arranged as before in his lap. So, little brother, the transportingly bass tone of the cat's voice echoes and answers lungs, you have decided. How? Answer starts, stripped of guile by circumstances that weigh against it. Jaguar lies stretched on his side, legs extended, as if he were standing, its long pink tongue runs around its lips. It's times before the Cayman ruled this place. Times when sacrifice here was of self, not others. What you are doing is what all the ones that have been you before would do. Answer snaps, annoyed by the manifestly disorienting hallucinatory space he finds himself having. God damn it, I'm so fucking sick of this, of you. Jaguar adopts a stern tone. Lifting its head to look, answer directly in the eye. Pay attention, little one, it growls. Pay attention to what you have come to do. And what is that exactly? Answer is impatient. Initiation. The cat seems to hiss its exhalation of the word. Birth. Eat. Answer hesitates for a second, staring at the velvet sheen of the massive cat's nose eat? Without further consideration, his hand drops to the deerskin, draped over his lap, and snags the small piece of root lying there. He raises it to his mouth and begins to taste it. No waiting, the cat purrs. No time. The tone is commanding. Answer pops the whole knob into his mouth and begins to chew. From altitude, the central plaza and its blunt earthen pyramid thronged with people seem like nothing more than toys arrayed on a table. Answer is falling through the sky, wind battering his ears, velocity pulling tears from his eyes, and breath streams from his nose. The sound of his own surprise emanates from his mouth like a trumpet's bell. Those in the plaza are looking skyward now, raising their hands, pointing at something. They're pointing at me, he thinks. I should be afraid. I'm falling. The faces resolve as he descends, men, women, children. Inexplicably, he slows and settles on the altar-like top of the pyramid with the ease of a dust moat arriving on a tabletop. Spread across the plaza below, a great mass of people look toward him, waving, dancing, twirling like drunken dervishes. The ground under his feet is soft white clay painted with the red and yellow images of flying jaguars. Answer looks out over the sea of writhing bodies. They chant and sing. The words are familiar. Kaim el halchupak, Kaim el halchupak, joy in being, joy in being. A ridiculously tall man, hidden by the beaked mast of an eagle, steps in front of him. This one is dressed in tapestry woven cape, whose design is a repeated form, a 
of a coiled serpent. He approaches Answer, raises the palm of his left hand, and strikes it sharply with two fingers of his right. The smacking sound flares out, sharply resonating in the plaza below. This one raises his cup palm to his lips and blows across it, making the sound of a sea conch blown by trumpeters. A cheer rises from the assembled throng. The priest pulls a knot of polished coal from beneath his cape. Answer turns his face, finds himself looking into the blood-spattered polish of a mirror. He seems a warped reflection of his face, his own face, exhibiting striking plasticity. In the next moment, the image becomes a cat, flying, running, moving so quickly that the background bends and smears, dissolving into a river of possibility. More words materialize in the air around him. Answer glances down to find that he is looking at his own naked body, transformed somehow. He raises his eyes to the crowd again and repeats the chant. He knows the words by heart. I am blood to bone what I am, who I am. I come to lead, to reveal. Below, receding into the distance, the crowds on the plaza spin and whirl, flowing into a squirming vortex that appears suddenly at the center of the plaza, moving, slipping into the whirlpool until it all disappears. This time, Answer notices that Jaguar's breath no longer smells rancid. Instead, the scent reminds him of a subtly scented violet cactus flower. Their faces are nearly touching. He can feel the heated perfume of the great cat's breath. Examining the whiskered muzzle, he looks into the jaguar's wide, yellow-green eyes. Now you are sure, the cat purrs, swinging its head side to side. You have seen. But I must warn you, the warrior's path is not a safe one. Answer knows. He understands the decision now. He has seen the edges of it all along. His eyes open, revealing the fresh day once again. It was only a blink. The blood-spattered lens lies in his lap alongside the blade. The cut on his finger has clotted. He can smell the saltiness of his own blood in his breath. He carefully wraps the bundle of the deerskin, stands and puts the package back in his pocket. His back aches like if he didn't know any better, he'd be tempted to blame the stiffness on a cold night. But he does know. Shouldering his pack, he walks to the edge of the granite shelf, admiring the oncoming day as it emerges out of the east. He can physically feel the cyclical nature of it now, the progressions and regressions of nature and power. This connectedness feels like a cord aching to be reeled in, but there is a knot in the cord, and he can feel that too. This cycle cannot complete until the knot is cut, untied for good. He turns and begins walking back toward the camouflage truck, still lingering where he left it. There is much to do and less time than perhaps he ever thought there was. Sunday, 10.02, GMT minus seven. Fred Marston reaches up to snug the greasy Stetson down onto his head with a swipe of his heavy forearm. A glob of rock and ice drifts onto the roadway in the heavy wind, and Fred 
racks the steering wheel loader hard to the right. The old rig rolls ominously, but bounces down in the intended direction, slamming Fred hard into the ripped up bucket seat. Piece of shit. Should have stayed in. A mean wind shoves icy snow against the windshield. At least, he comforts himself, had the good sense to box this cab in last year. Should have got the heater fixed. Fucking icy rain. He squints past his hands on the wheel, noticing for perhaps the ten millionth time the missing thumb on his right hand. He thinks what he always thinks. Never should have been drinking that for a rodeo. The hesitation was instantaneous, but enough to do the damage. While dadling a calf, his thumb caught between the coiled healer rope and the pommel as the noose tightened. The finger was gone before surprise could arrive. Dr. Eckhart was unfazed. Well, son, he said, bandaging the wound. That's a fine bit of whittling as I've seen you do. Over the years, sympathy had become nothing more than a rumor in Diablo. Wind mistreated the town with ordinary cruelty. There was a time during its railway years that Diablo had been known as Funnel Town, an homage to the descent of the winds that fell on it catabatic fashion, collapsing down mountains and shoveling misery through narrow valleys. The temperament of the folk in the area seemed sometimes almost physically shaped by the wind, carved like long-ago dunes and sediment, but leaving not even as permanent an impression on the world as all that. Fred bullies the skip loader down the main drag, empty of traffic other than his ancient yellow beast. To keep his mind off of the things, he broods on the quality of the tires. From the Eager's damn good sticks, he says to himself. I reckon Noah could have avoided all the trouble with the Ark if he had some of them fuckers. Midway down the icy avenue, Fred spies an open space along the snow drifts and crabs the front loader through the slush where he brings it to a fine stall flush against the makeshift curb. Yanks up his collar up and climbs out into the weather, gives a quick look down the hill. The feeding mill is buried to its eaves in snowdrifts, its roof beams looking ready to break under the strain of winter's freight. Not that it matters. Everything from there to the south end of town is not much more than ruin anymore. One other entry into the wreckage won't make any mind for anybody but Marty Herrick, and that sorry bastard ought to be in the rubble. Fred stumbles down the sidewalk and shoves his aching shoulder against the heavy door of the stirrup cup knocking his way inside. The bartender looks up, surprised. Some high, lonesome music is on the juke. One of the old XM satellite systems with a horrendous feed from subscription stations that don't exist anymore. Some bitch, Fred, the bartender moans. Where this file keep most sober men home, high and dry. You came in on the skitter? Fred shakes his head, no. All right, then. Ginger ale and orange? The bartender begins pouring the drink before the question is answered. Everyone in the place knows Fred don't drink. Not anymore. Days past, of course, Fred Marston and Stirrup Cup linked at the lip. Everyone knows the stories of Fred and his son Fred Jr.'s commitment to the appreciation of alcohol. Both the Marston men had what may be called a healthy appetite for drink, unless, that is, you were in the emergency room or liver transplant biz. Once, in a storm not unlike this one, the two of them got stranded in Short Wind Canyon. Almost two meters of snow had left them stuck real good in their line shack. Well, there was no problem in theory. They were well provisioned, equipped to wait out the weather. But then in the middle of the night, Fred Sr. discovered they were down to a single quarter red rose between them. Fred Jr. panicked. Boss, he said, you think you and me can stand being up here stuck like groundhogs with no juice? You best think again. Beverages had to be attained, weather or no. Drifts were up to three meters high by then, and a sensible man 
Wouldn't have gone out in weather like that to roll around in and do anything but die. For a reason, wasn't really at issue. A thirst had come over the two of them. Desperation time, said Fred Jr. I say we fire up the cat, crawl up out of here so as we can get some refreshments. Which they did. Pioneered a road at an impossibly steep angle up to the top of Priest Ridge, where they had a straight shot at their homestead. Problem was, halfway from there to the house, the engine seized. No fuel. Junior set out on foot. Good sense, however much of that suspect stuff he'd ever had, erased by a pure, desperate thirst. Senior himself stayed with the dozer, constrained from joining his son, only by the fact his left ankle, crushed in youth by a runaway haymow, refused to let him forge through the deep snow. Fred made it back to the cat before his father died of exposure. Stacked on the back of a John Deere backhoe, he brought saddle blankets, half a pound of venison jerky, and six quarts of George Dickel's finest sour mash. The D7 sat where it ran, dry, dead in the middle of Star Ridge for seven weeks. Fred had neglected to bring fuel for anything but the backhoe and their mutual habit, his priorities in absolute alignment with their common needs. Fred Sr. lingers at the bar, his course soaking up the heat cast off by the pellet stove glowing firefly yellow at the center of the room. The bartender busies himself arranging bottles, swabbing down shot glasses. Galleries of the dead, mountain goat, bighorn sheep, mountain lion and moose stare down the room as if waiting for a magical word to be said that will reanimate them. Three meters up, adjoining the ceiling, an old, mandated, second-hand smoke filter wheezes unhealthily. The bartender doesn't wipe down the counter. Too early for that. The men who occupy the stirrup cup at this hour are not the sort to squander essential fluids by spilling. Fred looks straight ahead. An old man, stooped by the weight of disappointment, stares unflinchingly back at him on the mirror. None of the others say is anything. Some are too drunk to see their own reflection. Some don't care what they see. Others avoid looking altogether. The bartender sidles up in front of Fred. Say, he says, plumb strange seeing you in town, you old bastard. What the hell brings you out? He nods down the bar. Sure fucking hell didn't come for the company. Fred looks up, regarding the sallow barkeep. His lazy eye settles on him, lending the impression that he is looking at something behind the wall. His enormous brow furrows as he determines whether or not to answer. Well, sir, he drips a sip from his mug into his mouth. I've been single-handed in the place since Fred Jr. passed. Frank nods. Everybody knows it's been hard for the old man living alone up on his place, remote as it is since his son died. Diabetes and alcohol are an infernal mix. Yep, mm -hmm. the bartender humps. It's all he feels authorized to offer by way of comment. After living like I've been 70 odd years up in these hills, ain't much gets my attention, know what I mean? Not like big cats or bad weather are gonna put much bother on me. Bartender nods, doesn't say anything. So, Fred goes on, last night I'm bedded down, the wind is pretty quiet. You can here now, a couple hundred yards off, about 2.30, I get waked up some fierce. First, I couldn't get a handle on it, like some kind of ungodly howling. Shakes his head. Don't know how to explain it proper. Mighty goddamn spooky sounding, though. So I drag my ass out of bed and step outside. No moon last night, you know, just this noise, that god-awfulest howling and screaming. Well, it sounded like it's coming from up that little draw past my place, so I got on the ATV and made up there for it. Figured it was reformationists or neo-hippies or some such shit. Whatever. Puts his hand in his chin and begins rubbing. The sound of his palm across the stubble scratches across the bar. 
seven, eight clicks up. I come upon this rise, and down below I see a big-ass fire. It looks like a mess of naked people dancing around. Well, you know, I feel about trespassing on the place. I got the 30-30, and I all decided to ride on down and show them the door when I heard the sound again. My blood just run cold. That sound shit, brother. I tell you, that noise make a dead man blink. Shit you not. I looked down there and seen him again. Fred leaned in to confide in low tones to the bartender, stretching, nearly standing on the railing stool. Ah, you know me, I don't drink. Don't smoke the weed. I'm telling you, God is my witness. I don't even believe in the bastard, but I for sure seen the devil up there in my place last night. And that's the goddamn truth. The bartender leans back. He can feel Fred's words right where they hit him in the head. Cold sweat breaks out in his lower back. Jesus, he thinks. I don't believe him up for this. He nods, trying to maintain a calm exterior. Well, Fred, he said, looks like you could use another drink there. Let me freshen that sweet water up. Old Fred gives the man an appraising stare. He smells the fear. It is his, and he understands it. He averts his eyes, concentrating his attention on the misshapen lump of knotted joints and fingers that are his hands. Yeah, mutters to himself, shoving the glass across the counter. Sure, I'll take another. Anything to avoid having to go back up that hill. Even after the bartender slides the newly refilled beverage back in front of him, Fred keeps examining his hands. He can't bring himself to look up, knowing that if he does, he may accidentally lock eyes with the powerless, terrified old man he knows will be staring back at him from the mirror behind the bar. We hope you have enjoyed our story. If you have, please let people know about it, and leave a rating and review to help others find us as well. We will be back soon with more music and conversations, so come hang out with us again soon. If you'd like to send us thoughts or ideas, email us at zenikatlason at gmail.com.